Hello and welcome back to Flywheel Effect. This is Jordan with Live School. This week we're joined by Professor Colin Jones. He's a professor at the University of Southern Queensland. And we're going to take two very unique ideas, educational entrepreneurship and the philosophy of adventuring, and we're going to apply those to how you might improve your school culture. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Happy listening. No time, no tools, big expectations. How do you transform school culture without derailing the train? Answer. Little wins that bring big changes. The flywheel effect. Harnessing the power of momentum to create a school culture that celebrates change and drives itself. You said, and I'm, I'm you know, hopefully I don't butcher the quote. So like, if it's not, if it's not right, fix it, please. Um, we want our students to develop an uncommon interest in a common place. Um, that, that idea of, of knowing your environment and then being curious about your environment. Um, that, that's kind of where I took from. And we've talked a lot about um, PBIL project-based learning on this pod is because like student engagement is something that we're all trying to do better at. Cause we, we all kind of agree that that's, that's the key to their success. They're engaged in their in the learning process. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this idea of adventuring and, and how, how you're going about teaching teachers to get that, get the most of that out of, out of their kids? Well, even though I'm sort of originally from Tasmania, uh, although I will say for the audience, uh, my, my roots come from uh, Rhode Island uh, because I'm actually a descendant of the Narragansett tribe. Um, so I have American Indian blood in me. Um, and Hobart, where I'm originally from, uh, used to be the southern capital of whaling in the world. And so the whalers from America would come south during their winter uh, and our illustrious ancestor Jedediah Johnson got off the ship and, and you know and 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 stayed in Tasmania uh, and <clears throat> which is quite ironic because the notion of adventuring comes from America so it's from Princeton University a guy called Roy Heath in the 1950s he studied uh, a cohort of students all the way through and then after their graduation and he wanted to understand what does it actually what does it how, what does it take for students to be able to create opportunities for satisfaction in their life, whether that's at school, at work, in their family life, in their sporting life, whatever it might be, but what would it take for students to be able to create opportunities for satisfaction? That work sort of came to a bit of a, an end. Uh, it's still used a little bit, I see, but, you know, if you type reasonable adventurer into Google Scholar, you'll mostly find me associated with it more than you will other people, which tells me that it's not as big a deal as it used to be um, many years ago. And um, after a few years of teaching entrepreneurship, I kept bumping into some of my students, graduates, and they'd be a bit embarrassed. It's like, oh, I've done this course in entrepreneurship with you, but I'm not an entrepreneur. I feel like I've let you down. I feel like I've failed. And I started realizing that the outcome of my course when I'm teaching people who are, say, 20 years old, it shouldn't be on to be an entrepreneur because they're too young, right? That'd be like saying every time you fall in love with someone at age 16 or 17, that's it. That would be the person you're going to get married to. When in reality, that's just part of the experimental journey of finding your way through personal relationships. And at some point, hopefully it all falls into place for you and live happily ever ever after. So I needed an intermediate step. I needed to find something that I could build a curriculum around, which would enable students to sort of understand where they're going, what the purpose of the journey is. And at the end of graduation, be able to say, ah, I've become 
because, you know, the, the engineering student becomes an engineer, the nursing student becomes a nurse, the accounting student becomes an accountant. But my entrepreneurship students, you couldn't say they became entrepreneurs because they just weren't well enough equipped with life experience and everything else that goes into that process. So I, I came across the notion of a reasonable venture and I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, if I could get my students to sort of visualise this notion of being able to graduate with a capacity to create opportunities for satisfaction, that would mean I've done my job in a meaningful way and it would have straightened them up in terms of having some attributes that would enable them to really stay focused on whatever it is that's going to come to them in their life. And so that's where the notion of adventuring came from, um, from the idea of the reasonable adventurer. There are six attributes to that. First one is intellectuality, and that simply means that the student isn't going to take anything that I or the other educators would say on face value. So it's their job. Their job is to understand when does an idea or a theory, when does it actually, when would it actually mean something in reality, right? So it's up to them to ask the question, well, under what context would that make sense? Under what context would that not apply? So that's their job. Uh, The second attribute is close friendships. So creating a curriculum where students get to know each other at a really deep level so they understand each other's worldviews. Well, I see the world that way, but gee, my colleague over here sees the world that way. You know, Uh, what does that mean? Why might they view it differently? And and so being able to change your own worldview because you start to understand other people's worldviews. The third attribute is personal judgments. So actually creating opportunities for people to make decisions and then find out that those decisions have consequences or don't suit them as best as they could and being able to go back. and But to build the confidence to be able to make decisions based on their own values as opposed to what they think someone else wants them to do. The fourth attribute is a tolerance for ambiguity. I'm an absolutely brilliant educator in this regard because I'm so unorganised that I bring natural ambiguity in my students' lives. They're like, what are we doing? And I'm like, I don't really know. And I'll explain that in a minute, why I wouldn't know. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so it's it's very much about creating a space where they know they can't get all of the assumed answers to be able to make decisions. They're going to have to make decisions in the absence of full knowledge and trust their gut and try to sort of eliminate risk where they can. Uh, and then we've got the breadth of interest, which is essentially the, the uncommon interest in the commonplace. And so rather than assuming, oh, when I graduate, I'm going to go to New York and get a fantastic job because that's where everything happens. So I say, well, actually, here in Ohio, that's where we were, there's actually plenty of opportunities right underneath your feet. You've just been dreaming of this other world that you think you need to go to to be successful when actually what is it you want to do? Uh, because maybe... You could do it here. Maybe it would be easier here because you've actually got lots of social capital. You've already built up a bit of human capital in an industry and you actually therefore can access resources much easier than you would if you landed in New York and you don't know anyone. You've never worked in any industry there and you wouldn't even know how to get hold of the resources. So making sure people actually understand what they would be leaving behind if they were to leave you know, their roots. And then lastly... Uh, which sort of plays into another one of my strong points, is a sense of humour. So having a really light atmosphere in the teaching environment where everything is benign. No one's taking the mickey out of someone 
by making fun of them at someone's expense. We can have a joke, but it's a joke, which is much harder to do these days with political correctness and all those sorts of things. So, But trying to reset everyone's expectations so that people aren't going to get tripped up quickly or triggered by something they might think is offensive when actually we're just trying to use humour as a means of sort of just lowering everyone's guard a little bit. So those six attributes are what I've built my curriculum around, making sure that the student experience um, unfolds through that process. Hey, guys, this is Jordan from Live School. I'm going to take a quick break to share a story about one of our partner schools, Del Valley Elementary in Del Valley, Texas. When Principal Jay Maines arrived at Del Valley, he realized behavior was a major concern for his staff as his school of just 600 students tallied 276 referrals and 88 instances of exclusionary discipline in just one year. The next year, his leadership and behavior teams began examining all their systems and policies related to behavior. And then that following year, they found and implemented live school across the entire building. Now, fast forward three years later, and they have reduced referrals by 82% reduced those exclusionary discipline practices by 93%, and they're consistently celebrating the kiddos who are doing a great job in their building to the tune of 42,000 positive behavior interactions recorded last year. If you'd like to learn how to improve student behavior and culture in your school, check us out at wildlifeschool.com. Hearing this quote that Jordan mentioned, and you mentioned again about the uncommon interest in a common place, I was trying to figure out Okay, so how how do teachers make it a commonplace for students? And based on that explanation, it sounds like it's really in the relationships and the culture you've built within this classroom. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the the key is that I don't bring I don't bring the context. I'm only bringing a process. So many of my graduates over the past were woken up haunted by this notion of, oh, it's okay, just trust the process, you know, and, and many of them would say, Whoa, what process, you know, because maybe that hasn't become quite as apparent to them. One of the one of the challenges here is you could frame, you could look at what I've done in the past with students from a problem-based learning perspective. You could, but one of the differences is that I don't bring the problems. You can set, because obviously problems can be opportunities, right? But whether you view it as a problem you want to solve or an opportunity that your sense is there to be uh, tackled, it's from their hearts and their minds. So it's not, I don't introduce, I don't say, hey, I've met an entrepreneur down the street or I've, let, I've met a, you know, someone in your local community who needs this problem solved. So <clears throat> I have a very, maybe I'm just, I've always been too uh, fixated on this I don't want to – I'm giving them the process. I think that's enough. I don't want to then enforce on them a learning context. So it's up to the student to actually work out what matters to them, You know, what actually are they interested in. And so some students, especially international students, sometimes will say, well, I don't know, I don't really know what I could actually focus on. And so my starting question will always be, well, if you weren't here sitting here with me right now, what would you most like to be doing? So someone says, I would like to be riding my horse. I'd like to be playing video games. I'd like to be down at the skate park. I'd like to be doing whatever it is, finding out what they would most like to do if they weren't here at the university, they weren't sitting with me, if they weren't in class. What would they most like to be spending their time doing? 
once they nominate something and everybody has something that they can nominate, then the follow-up question is, fantastic, how do you think you could create some value in that space? Everybody can create value in the space that they're most interested in. So I'll give an example. I had a young uh, Malaysian student, um, Muhammad, and he was from um, an area in Malaysia where he would spend most of his time playing indoor soccer. I think it was because he could get out of the heat, but maybe it was a you know air-conditioned sort of room, but he loved to play his indoor soccer. And that was his answer, you know, what would you most like to be doing if you weren't sitting here with me? And he said, well, you know, down at the gym playing indoor soccer. I'm like, fantastic. So how could you create some value doing that? And he said, he went away and thought about it. He came back and said, I'm going to run an, a World Cup using all the nationalities that are present here at the university. I'm going to run a World Cup three-on-three three or something like that uh, soccer tournament. So like, fantastic. That sounds great. So off he went. Anyway, ran the program, ran, ran his tournament, went very well. And when he was reflecting on what he learned from it, his learning, his main learning, was that if you ask people for help, they'll help you. That's a great learning, right? It's a good, you know, because how many of us try to do something in life where we're too stubborn, we don't, we, we not, can't tell anyone what my idea is. My gosh, they'll pinch it, you know, which happens about one every million times you tell someone an idea. Um, or you have this this fear that you you don't have it well thought out enough, and that they'll they'll think it's not good, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and it's it's a very irrational way of thinking about things. Or you, you want people to sign non disclosure agreements, like, mate, do you want me to help you or not? That that would be based on trust, right? So getting me to fill in this form, it, it's a highly you know competitive type of relationship you're trying to sort of uh, create so it's that type of and we've had so many still had a young girl who came from um the middle east her project she wanted to raise money in australia so she could send money back to hospitals in the gaza strip to help people that were finding themselves there when bombs had blown up so if that's what she's passionate great and that's what she did right she raised a few hundred dollars at the end of the semester she thought well you know what not only I learned something really good about the process and about me, but I feel really fantastic about what I've been able to achieve in terms of helping people back home. So it really doesn't matter what that little journey is. I had just to really sort of scale it up. I had one lady, Elkie, she was a mature age student. So that sort of helped her in terms of her social capital. She knew more people than the 20 year olds, but her passion was the elephants in um, I think uh, Thailand. But anyway, elephants that are essentially kept prisoners, tied up with barbed wire sort of collars, so to speak. And so her passion was to get over there and help, a, you know, a project that sort of frees these elephants, rescues them. So it sounded like a pretty big idea. But for her, it was like, I have to run two, I have to run two big dinners in Tasmania where I invite people to come along and pay more than they need to for the food. She did that. She raised enough money to get on the plane, to go and volunteer. She did that during the semester. She got back before the end of the semester. She came in. She put up on a slide, you know, put up on her PowerPoint slides, her in the mud down there with her tin snips, cutting the barbed wire, getting these elephants, you know, having the elephant put its heart trunk around her to say thank you and, and all this sort of stuff. And the other students look at that and think, wow, your passion has taken you somewhere. And 
and we can see how you've actually gone on this adventure. You see, you know, you had a lot of obstacles to get through, but you managed to solve them. And about a few years later, maybe seven or eight years later, I got a letter from her where she had, um, there'd been some bushfires in Tasmania and she wanted to do something about raising money. So all of the uh, injured animals that were sort of not really dead, but they were sort of, should they actually be kept alive from the bushfire, that they could raise money, take them to the vet and get them cared for properly. And she was able to raise, I think, ten or $15,000 and she got all these small animals and, you know, into proper care. She sent me a lovely letter. So, you know, I wouldn't have been able to know how to do this if I hadn't gone on that adventure. And so that adventure was just a stepping stone for another adventure and another adventure. And I think that's really one of the key things about this. It's not, oh, I graduated and I'm now an expert in adventure A. No, no, no. It's just like everything else in life. You went on an adventure and now you can reflect on that and learn from that and it'll sort of get you ready for the next one. So kind of to tie that back to, uh, you know, K through 12 education, that, that idea of adventure and those attributes you spoke of, those are things that they can carry over into anything. You know what I mean? And you started from a, an idea that I don't think we start off from there all that often in education is the idea of how can we, what, what is going to bring the student satisfaction once that, once they finish. And I don't think we start there enough. I, mean, I think we always look at, we have these standards we got to teach, but we don't really think all that much about like, what can we do with this that that student is then going to make them happy? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, if let's say you walk into a typical K to 12 type context and let's say it's, uh, you know, elementary level, right? So we've got some very young kids there, right? So quite often we might sort of say, oh, we think entrepreneurship education should be some should be present in their curriculum because it's a topical thing, it's a popular thing for us to do. And so we might have some modules on, you know, what's an entrepreneur, um, uh, how to sell, how to manage, how to organise resources and all sorts of things like that. So, so my view would be totally the wrong way to do it, totally the wrong way. Well, they don't need to know who entrepreneurs are. Entre- entrepreneurs are, it's a very misguided label anyway, because we call anyone who's a business person an entrepreneur and the original definition is of an entrepreneur is someone who's doing something novel, doing something that's totally different than the way everyone else does it. And, and if everyone else then copies that person, that person ceases to be an entrepreneur, that's a business person, right? So it, it should be something that we only give to the people who really do something quite different, right? Everyone else is just a business person. It leads us really nice into the last question I was going to ask because there's kind of the idea about, about – preparing students for for the workforce and, and for college um, and for a particularly a workforce that's changing pretty drastically and, and in a lot of ways. Um, I, I even, you know, some context on, on myself. I'm, I'm, I do remote work. I do some freelance work. Those are things that I did not know anything about about 10 years ago. And the world changed quite a bit and here, here I am. Tell us that idea about remote work, freelancing, and what that means for students who are preparing to enter the workforce, particularly like how can teachers help them? Hmm. Well, I think that I think the main thing is it's to get people to view it as an apprenticeship. So for, I'm not sure how widely used the word apprenticeship is in America, uh, but the apprenticeship, you know, typically the notion that, you know, you're going to be a builder. So you in, in the first year you're doing something on that building site, you're not expected to be an expert. Look, listen, 
be guided and gradually you'll be given more responsibility and you take on more opportunities there and eventually someone will say, you're actually a certified builder and you could go off and do it by yourself. So if I'm going into um, a freelance type situation, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just a first-year apprentice. I'm not an expert, right? So what we know about the difference between novices and experts is that novices are not little experts. They don't have the same way to think about things, right? Think about when you very first started teaching compared to what you do now. So there's a whole bunch of things that you used to worry about when your very first day you walked into a class that now you don't give any concern to. Why? Because you know they don't matter and you know you can control for them if they did occur, right? And so an expert can zero in on the things that actually matter. A novice is still confused by all the things in that sort of in that total space that may or may not ever even occur, right? And so uh, when you start that freelancing process, you're surrounded by a whole range of different inputs, and use them. Some of them will take you down the wrong end. You'll end up in a cul-de-sac where you think, well, that was a total waste of my time. Uh, so, you know, why did I do that work for someone for so little money? Well, maybe that's an investment you just made in yourself because now you've learned how long it actually takes to do it. Maybe you've learned what it's like to not get paid. Why, you know, all of those various things, take the little opportunities, absorb them, and just learn from them because it's an opportunity just to keep updating yourself. As humans, we learn because we we put into play the, um, the sensory motor system. So it's almost impossible to learn if we're not moving. And what freelancing gives us an opportunity is move in un- you know, surprising directions because we might go into a, a co-walking space maybe and we get introduced to different ideas and things things that we might not have actually anticipated. Just view it as an, as an apprenticeship. That means all apprentices, apprentices have someone who is their guardian, right? Somebody who's helping them. So <clears throat> don't go on that journey if you don't have a good mentor. Who's the mentor? Who's going to help you? They don't have to be in the space. They could be already at the destination where you want to get to, right? But you have to have a mentor. Try to find an opportunity to work in the industries that you actually want. So before you get into the freelancing space, become a volunteer in the freelancing space. Understand the rules of the game. Every social process has a set of rules. Some don't matter so much because it's not overly um, controlled. Others do matter. But if you don't know what the rules of the game are in terms of what's etiquette, what's the right way to do things, what's the the pecking order that might be associated, then, you, you know, you're at risk for the environment choosing against you. Even though, And you might not even know why the environment chose against you. So study it. Don't just assume I go in there and spend my time. Think about how do people succeed as a freelancer? What type of journey do they actually have to, what sort of price do you have to pay to become knowledgeable in that space? Is it a deficit? Am I being... Am I being taken advantage of because I'm doing work for so little or is that actually an investment? That's only that's a call that the individual has to make, right? Um, but it's it's very much going to be the way of the future. Uh, an old friend of mine who's 55, 56, sorry, she just retired. She, she left high school in 1981 uh, or thereabouts <clears throat> and 
she did a pub, what they call the public service exam here in Australia, so for a government agency. She got a job there when she was 16, and now 40 years later, she's completed 40 years of service. And then she can retire. And, you know, if she's lucky enough to live to 90-odd, she's going to have a fantastic pension for the rest of her life. Great. Well, that opportunity doesn't exist anymore. One, you'd have to go to university for a start uh, just to be a chance to get into the public service. Um, and even then, chances are you're not going to have 40 years of employment. So things like freelancing are really going to sort of almost be a rite of passage for a lot of people in finding their bearings, making sense of things. So don't look to be an expert there. Don't think that you have to be a master there. View it as a learning space, learning about yourself, an opportunity to invest in yourself. Uh, and, and one of the things I'll, I'll leave you with is the biggest cause of anxiety is thinking about success. I want to be successful. So the easiest way to take all of that burden away is to base your success on two questions. What is it you want to, at this point in time in your life, what is it you want to do and where do you want to do it? And that's it. Don't compare yourself. When I say, we in Australia, we say don't compare yourself to the Joneses. That's obviously not comparing yourself to me. But um, because there's always going to be someone lucky. Yeah, don't, there'll always be someone luckier, smarter, better looking, you know, all of those things than you. There'll always be someone who, who meets that criteria, right? So uh, if you can ask the question, what is it you most want to be doing now, this week, this month, this year, what is it you want to do and where do you most want to do it? So if that means I want to be understanding what it means to be a freelancer in Brooklyn and that's where you are, you are a success. You don't have to do any more than that. That's You are a success. Next year, you might change it and say, I want to be an intern at somewhere and I want to do it in Miami. And if that's where you get, if you get an intern, you are a success. You can change the answers to those two questions at any time, right? But that's all you have to focus on. Am I doing what I want to do where I want, where I want to be? I am at the moment. Fantastic. I am a success. That's it. Once you start bringing other people into the equation and, and uh, dreaming of something that you might be doing when you're 40, when you're 20, you're not going to succeed. You're only going to create anxiety and that's only going to bring you, you know, a world of pain that is unnecessary because most of us, but as you know, we started somewhere and we just sort of crawled our way up. Uh, and a lot of the young generation feel this need to sort of somehow graduate from school and be a success in some industry it's like that's ridiculous no one ever did that why would you why would you assume that but we take a lot of these developmental processes out of society because the structure of work has changed so you don't become the male person and move up to the something else person and you know, have that wonderful story like fred smith at fedex where you started here just you know doing something simple and you end up you know running the show well we don't see so many of those stories now you're expected to create your own mail room and then go on and, you know, create that, well, just, you know, do it in steps. Don't put the pressure on yourself. Invest in yourself and, and have fun as you're doing it. And just keep moving. The more you move, the more you realise you actually have to adjust your reference frames. The brain's always making predictions about the world we're in. And then when we find out those predictions aren't quite right, 
we get a chance to reset and change our expectations of the world. And that's much easier when you're moving. If you're not moving, then you're just dreaming about things. Um, you have to keep moving. So whatever it is you're doing, just keep moving. Keep on an adventure. Carl, this has been fantastic. These are some topics we don't talk a lot about, but they're they're things that can be applied very easily to to teaching and running schools and and when you're talking with students and in those kind of environments. Just to, I want to kind of tie a few things back because you know a lot of our audience is, is teachers and principals and so the you know the idea of you know adventuring and you know, developing that curiosity. That is how you create engagement in your classroom, you know, and, and those you know those six attributes that those are six attributes that would be great students as well. And if you could set up your environments in your school or your class to where those things thrive, you're going to be successful. Um, the other piece there here at the, at the end, where we we're talking about freelancing, um, I, I don't know if you realize in that context, but this is that's some great um, social emotional learning advice. That for for students who are going through a lot of anxiety, you know, they, they want to be successful, but they, they, they compare themselves to people on social media. They, they compare themselves to celebrities. What do you want to be doing? Where do you want to do it? And then that is how you define your success. That, that's a great way to to kind of stomp that noise out and you know, give those folks a chance for success. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just. It, sometimes it's hard and it sort of comes right back to the very first question you ask, which is an uncommon interest in the commonplace. Well, an uncommon interest in yourself, that's a fantastic place to start. The best person you're ever going to meet should be you. And the person who is you're going to rely on the most in life when things go south is you. You'll always be present in your worst times and you can't guarantee that other people will be. So you have to rely on yourself because you're going to be the first person who's going to have an opportunity to right the ship when things aren't going well. So just you've got, to, you've got to find a way to fall in love with yourself. That's the best person to fall in love with. This has been so much fun. Um, it's very early your time, and um, and I know you've, you, we talked earlier. You've got a, a, some big things happening today. Hannah, do you got anything to add before we go? No, I I really appreciate this conversation. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling like I'm a success as of right now. So thank you for that call. <laughs> um, secondly, like what I'm taking from this conversation is like it's it's really not about that end result. It's about the learnings and the process as you go through it. And I feel like I could have very much used that when I was teaching, but I can also really use that now and in what I do at life school. So this is, this is a fun conversation. Yeah, this is great. If, if folks want to reach out and, and find you, could they find you on social media or LinkedIn call? Yeah. Um, Taz devil. Um, uh, so just uh, T T A S D E V I L Taz devil Cole. Um, so we're in Tasmania, we have, as you know, from Warner brothers, we have the Tasmanian devil. Um, so I've, for whatever reason, inherited the nickname, Taz Devil Cole. So if you type in Taz Devil Cole into uh, Facebook, uh, any of Instagram, Twitter, any of those things, you'll find me. The Flywheel Effect, harnessing the power of momentum to create a school culture that celebrates change and drives itself. <laughs>